Greetings, friends. Happy Labor Day weekend, and welcome to Singing Scientist, Perspectives of an Artist Who Does Science. I have a really fun episode, or at least a really juicy one, in store for you today. The title is Choosing One or Choosing Many, Interrogating Monogamy. (laughs) Oh, yes, we're going there today. Let's just start the journey by being frank, shall we? This is a question that every single person faces and struggles with. Everyone asks, should I commit? Do I want to commit to one person or not? Is there anything about being exclusive that is beneficial? Um, And what about uh, what happens when I feel otherwise, when I'm attracted to other people? And is there anything to this nearly ubiquitous social convention of marriage and contractual legal commitments to other people? Um, What is that all about? And I think I want to start by listing the caveats, or at least the situations in which I don't think it's probably a good idea to make a long-term exclusive commitment with someone. And first and foremost would be when someone is young. (laughs) I really believe that's true. And I want to read to you uh, a little little section of Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke. Now, Rilke writes about love, and it's very well known what he says, um, this particular quote, which is that uh, love consists in two solitudes, bordering, protecting, and saluting one another. Oh, that is such a beautiful image. Um, However, it's not what I want to talk about right now. That comes later. Before he gets to that very well-known passage, he actually has a pretty scathing section rebuking the folly of young love. Now, uh, you'll, you'll laugh with me as I read some of this. He says this, Young people who are beginners in everything <laughs> cannot yet know love. They have to learn it. For what would a union be of something unclarified and unfinished? Only in the sense of working at themselves might young people use the love that is given them. Now, I want to stop there before going on because I think he has a tremendous insight here. And uh, what he's telling us is one of the real purposes of love. So what I think is true is that one of the great purposes of love is to learn about oneself. Now, of course, love is a wonderful thing. Giving and receiving love is a purpose of a relationship. But I do think that relationships provide a unique opportunity and environment in which we can learn the truth about ourselves and grow. Okay. So continuing on with that in mind, he, uh, he tells us a little bit more about how young love can go into error. Young people err so often and so grievously in this that they, in whose nature it lies to have no patience, (laughs) fling themselves at each other. And then what? What is life to do to this heap of self-battered existence which they call their communion? (laughs) It's just too good. Each loses himself for the sake of the other and loses the other and many others that want it still to come and loses the expanses and the possibilities. 
No realm of human experience is so well provided with convention as love, life preservers of most varied invention. The social conception has managed to supply love an easy form, cheap, safe, and sure, as public pleasures are. <laughs> what? Uh, just dripping with wisdom here. Um, what is he saying? I think that he's saying that... Um, Basically, what he leads up to later, what everyone knows that Rilke says about love being two solitudes bordering and protecting and, and saluting one another, this is, this is the necessary backdrop to that because the alternative is not solitudes. The alternative is misshapen, no real identity, um, sort of globular existences flinging themselves at each other. Right. So, so what does that mean? I think the whole point here is that unless two individuals have their own identity and purpose, they cannot really love. Okay. And, and a big reason for that is that so often you've met them. I've been them. Uh, we all know that this happens and it's when someone does not have an identity or purpose or wholeness of their own. It is so easy, isn't it? To fall into the trap of finding one's life meaning in another of substituting someone else's interests and substituting someone else's love for our own. And in so doing, um, just as Rilke says, we lose ourselves as well as, as them, because when we don't have our own identity, we have no borders with which to love another. So Rilke is really brilliant here, and I think points us to a more general principle about when monogamy or commitment is probably not a good idea. And that's when we're young or when we lack our own shape and identity. So if you're using, and it's hard to, be, um, hard to be honest with oneself about this, but if we feel that we're using someone else as, as uh, sort of our purpose, I think that that might be a situation in which to steer clear. You, we still have learning to do. Now, I have, I have a much bigger list. Um, and, and I think the only other one that I want to talk about at, at this time is some of the bad arguments people use. Um, one that I really cringe at uh, when people say this is, um, and, and it comes from both sides, people who believe in monogamy or don't, and they say, well, there are monogamous species in nature. Well, the same is true of polygamy. There are polygamous species in nature. While we're at it, there's cancer in nature. There's also beauty and goodness in nature. The mere existence of something in nature, I do not think, is prescriptive. It is not normative. A phenomenon occurring somewhere in the world does not say that that phenomenon is good. That is not a logical argument. Are you with me? So I think that we can dispense with that kind of faulty reasoning. Um, and there's one other thing, too, that I think is good to recognize when we start talking about long-term commitments. And this is something that I realized, I don't know if you've seen the movie um, The Fault in Our Stars. Spoiler alert, I'm going to tell a little bit of the story. It's such a heartbreaking, beautiful movie. I loved it. Um, and there are these two young people who have cancer. And they meet at a like a cancer support group, and it, the girl um, appears to be doing much worse than the guy that she meets. They fall in love, 
and um, they try to make the most of their months or years that they have left together. They don't know how long it's going to be. Well, it turns out that the girl's cancer goes into remission, and the boy, who we thought had nearly recovered, suddenly has just a terrible relapse and passes away. Okay, so what this made me think of when I saw this weeping in the theater um, was, wow, actually, their story is our story. That story of loss is everyone's reality. Now, if you don't agree with this, then I suggest that you think a little bit more about mortality. There is no one we know of so far that hasn't died, <laughs> right? Do you think you're going to be the exception? No. We all pass. And what does that mean? That means that whether it's a month, a year, or a decade, whatever relationship we have now is going to come to an end. Now, I don't know what views some of you may have of the afterlife or lack thereof, but I think it's safe to say at least that whatever relationships we have now will, if not cease to exist, then significantly change the way uh, in which they operate upon our death. Um, and so that story, heartbreaking as it is, is our story. All of us will lose what we have and what we perhaps cling to now in our relationships. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has the following to say in her book, Life Lessons with David Kessler. Not all relationships are supposed to last a lifetime. Some are supposed to end. Some are supposed to last 50 years, others six months. Some relationships are only complete when a person dies. Others complete themselves during our lifetimes. The length of a relationship or how it ends is never wrong. It's simply life. Ultimately, we have to look at relationships in terms of whether or not they are complete and of how best to complete them. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? But it's true. And I think there's freedom in this truth. The, the freedom comes by recognizing that we don't find all of our purpose in another. We have our own identity. And no matter what relationship we, we engage in, even if we do commit, even if we have a monogamous, long-term, exclusive relationship, they are all coming to an end. And I think that that will allow us, that perspective, that eternal, timeless perspective, both allows us to maintain our individuality and identity, and also allows us to appreciate and invest in every moment we have with another, doesn't it? Now, I mentioned earlier that I believe, in addition to the act of giving and receiving love, that I believe one of the major purposes of relationships is to teach us about ourselves, okay? And there's one other uh, premise before going forward that I want to add to that, and it is this. There are some good things in life that can only be obtained through discipline. <laughs> can anybody doubt it? It seems trivial saying it, but it's so easy to forget that sometimes we don't reap rewards right away. Sometimes our momentary desires are not best to be acted upon. Sometimes 
good things require patience. Okay. So as I was thinking about what might a reason for monogamy be, struggling with it for myself, because I don't think it's clear, I, th I thought about this universal principle that in virtually all other domains of life, great depth and richness and talent and skill always comes from choosing one of many. Basically, we have a finite energy budget. We cannot have it all. There are trade-offs in life uh, regarding what we spend our time doing, regardless what we spend practicing. And um, if you spread yourself too thin, then you will lose depth in any one of those directions. Um, Greg McKeown has this great book, Essentialism, in which he lays out this principle. He says that by investing in fewer things, we can have the satisfying experience of making significant progress in the things that matter most to us. We have to reject the idea that we can fit it all in because we can't. We have to grapple with real-life trade-offs and make tough decisions and priorities. And so I thought about this and I thought, could the same thing apply to love? Now, one example in my own life of this principle comes from singing, of course. And um, it is that for a while in my life, I would, uh, I basically thought of singing as a science where I could get a little knowledge over here and a little knowledge over here. And there is some truth to that. However, what ended up happening was that by seeing just a whole bunch of different teachers, I would have lessons with whomever I could in whatever style I could, and I figured that eventually um, I could synthesize all of that knowledge and sort of come up with a technique of my own. Unfortunately, the result was that I constantly got messed up. By not committing to any one technique or training style, um, the, the muscles of my throat and larynx became confused. Um, I didn't know what to do on certain pitches and certain vowels. Uh, because I'd been taught different things by people who used completely different systems. And uh, it just didn't work. Because I lacked depth in any one training, because I was pulled in a million different directions with conflicting, uh, conflicting knowledge and beliefs, I was not able to make vocal progress. I learned a few pointers. I learned a little bit of knowledge. But in terms of depth, richness, and real talent, I made very little advances. Same thing goes for dancing. Um, one of the great dancers that I happened to meet at Broadway Dance Center here in New York is Pasha Gorbachev. And one thing that he said to me was that I should focus for at least a year on taking with one teacher when I begin. And he said, it's, you know, you should really master one style before moving on to another. Otherwise, you never really embody it. You, it never sinks into your bones. You never own it. And in so doing, it's so easy to lose, and you don't really make that much progress. So I think this is a universal principle. It's also true in science. If I try to learn a zillion different programming languages, um, I'm going to know how to get the computer screen to show a few words and all of them, but I'm never going to be able to make a computer program that really does something great with just this surface level knowledge in each. Depth is required for that type of advancement. Depth and commitment and long-term discipline in a single direction, as Nietzsche says. 
Now, C.S. Lewis, in a wonderful passage from The Weight of Glory, his essay, says this, that we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. <laughs> so, from my perspective, the stakes are kind of high. Like, is something like that, some, some embodiment of that principle also at work in love, in relationships? Is there some glorious thing to be gained by sticking with a single person, by going deeper, by um, not constantly seeking the pleasure that comes from quick relationships or new relationships, but going into what seems like a more monotonous stage and pushing through and seeing what richness and depth it has to offer. Is there something true there? And again, drawing upon my life experience, I know that there is in all the other realms. I know that in singing, when I finally stuck with one technique for a while and really learned it, I gained more and more ability to express myself the way I wanted. Now, there may not be, it may not be the case that I agree with everything in that technique or that I find it the most aesthetically pleasing, but I was able to advance own it, and therefore use it at will. Same thing is true of learning a new language. Um, if you, uh, you know, it's, it's really tough <laughs> at first. I've tried to learn a little Chinese. It's like I'm the dumbest person in the world. <laughs> but I can imagine, and I see others who successfully learn another language, and then they're suddenly um, able to enjoy the poetry, enjoy the novels, enjoy the unique perspective on truth that a different language has to offer. And the list just goes on. So this is a universal principle. Is it the case that it holds for relationships? And when I speak to my betters, when I, when I hear uh, the advice that older, for example, older gay men whom I respect, who are either in relationship or not, when I listen to what they have to say, they almost universally tell me that they wish they had chosen someone. Sometimes with tears in their eyes, they take my hands, look at me and say, please appreciate what you have with your significant other. I so wish I could do it again. <laughs> And I'm really hesitant to ignore such advice. Now, by no means is my point here to scare us into monogamy, by no means. I mean, that's the whole point of what Rilke talked about. We should always, especially in love, operate out of a sense of abundance, never a sense of scarcity or um, urgency, by no means. However, I do think that these considerations are cause for just thinking upon what the benefits of a long-term committed relationship might be. And the very first things that come to mind are the practical ones. Now, it's easy to dismiss these as insignificant, but they really can be quite substantial. 
For example, uh, finances, sharing expenses with someone. This can improve virtually every aspect of your life, allow you to get a better place, a better location, better food, all of it. Um, in addition to that, there is someone to take care of you, someone you can count on when you're down or when you're ill or in need. Um, if you want to raise a child, if that's something you want out of life, then uh, you can have a partner for that. There's a big list of just practical benefits. But what I am mostly interested in is the benefit of learning more about oneself, because I take that to be such a central point of, of, of love, loving relationships. So could a long-term relationship help us to go deeper in self-awareness and self-knowledge and in love of another than could otherwise be possible? And I think it probably is. For starters, in my experience, it's kind of another universal principle that people, for the most part, do not change unless there is conflict and they have to. (laughs) As uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, many people get rid of the partner instead of the problem. (laughs) Ouch. But it's true. I think that Um, especially in a place like New York City and in today's day and age where there's online dating and apps to meet people at the drop of a pin, it's so easy at the moment of conflict to find an out, to find another, when actually conflicts and seeming incompatibilities that arise might be our greatest source of growth. In whatever fight we just had or whatever misunderstanding we just had, there might be a huge opportunity to learn more, to learn how to communicate better, to learn, maybe it would have been better if I had said it this way, or to learn, maybe, maybe this is something about myself that is not who I want to be. Maybe this is something I would like to change, something that is not lovely about myself that I would like to make more lovable. And that relationship where you have a commitment with someone, it doesn't really matter how long, but, it, it, but as long as you can't run away from it, you're sort of forced to face your issues and your problems. And what could facilitate growth more than something like that? How much could you grow by learning to love someone else even when you don't like them in the same way that you love yourself even when you don't like yourself? <laughs> That's paraphrasing C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. It's so deep. It's so rich. And man, it is so difficult. But neither is it without a glimmer of hope. I mean, we hear about the great makeup sex somebody had, right? (laughs) There's really something so deep and connecting and rich and rewarding about having a conflict with someone else. And being willing to lean into that discomfort of communicating about it, of coming to a better understanding of the other and oneself, and then reuniting. It's a beautiful, rich experience. However, it's not for the faint of heart. And if one isn't interested in growing um, in, in that situation, then, uh, then there's no reason to do it. And additionally, the conflict might be so great Um, The other person might have actually hurt you in a deep way that you shouldn't stay, you should leave. But I'm talking more just about the everyday mundane um, 
living with one another, seeing each other warts and all, and still choosing to love, still choosing to grow and progress, journeying together on the path of self-growth. Now, what happens when you become attracted to somebody else? (laughs) Oh, come on. It happens to everybody. How do you deal with it? And this is a very difficult thing because sometimes it's difficult to understand uh, whether or not um, there's something incompatible with your present partner that is causing you to look elsewhere or whether it's just sort of a fleeting temporary uh, temptation or desire for, for another person. And so this is the point at which we have to get really honest with ourselves about what it is that is driving us to be dissatisfied in our present situation or more interested in another. No one can, uh, in making a commitment to someone, whether it's short-term or long-term or anywhere in between, no one can go, uh, can promise to go on feeling in the same way. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, a promise must be about things I can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling in a certain way. He might as well promise never to have a headache or always to feel hungry, (laughs) right? So there will be times where we don't feel like it, right? And and in deciphering what that means, because it's not bad to feel something, but in deciphering what that means, I suggest that the first thing we do is identify what it is that is driving us elsewhere. Now, at least for me, I don't know about you, but I notice that most often it's physical attraction that that, uh, um, draws me to other people. And when I think about it and face that reality head on, I do not think that that is a worthwhile standard. Is that really the foundation, my fleeting attraction to the state of someone's body in one time and place? All of our bodies will wither and decay. Is my attraction to one person's body at this time really the foundation upon which I want to base my relationship decisions? (laughs) I don't think so. It's not what I value most. Or if it is, then I don't want to keep on being like that. That's something I want to change about myself. And what I find is that if I really think about what drew me to commit to my current partner in the first place, all of those wonderful things that led me to make a decision to say, yes, this is someone I want to invest some time with. This is someone that is worth my while that deserves my undivided attention. And if I think about all of the reasons that I made that decision in the first place, the physical attraction to other people, fleeting in the moment, loses much of its power. Remember why you chose the person that you did. Now, another thing that I think is very enlightening to think about is just the fact that these thrills of have, uh, having new relationships and meeting new people really don't produce desirable results. I mean, we all know the people who are constantly talking about someone new, constantly seeing uh, someone else. Um, 
not really investing in their own self-growth. And these are the people, you know, what becomes of their sleep and what becomes of their appetite and their work? I mean, they're just all over the place and they're really not pleasant to be around, are they? <laughs> are you with me? I don't want to be like that. Now, uh, C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and try to prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker, fewer and fewer, and you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. (laughs) Do you know them? I do. He goes on to say, it is because so few people understand this that you find many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth at the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all round them. It is much better fun to learn to swim than to go on endlessly and hopelessly trying to get back the feeling you had when you first went paddling as a small boy. (laughs) What a word of rebuke. Now, of course I'm talking about an extreme. Of course, there are different situations and different, um, different responses should be applied to those different situations. But let us not forget the folly of running away, the folly of making cheap thrills our regular diet, and the damage that we do not only to our self-growth, but to those around us, both the people, the, the sad victims we fall in love with, and the people that we call friends and have to watch and witness as we tear them uh, through this muck with us. Now, it's not easy. And um, deciding if a, if a partner is compatible with you and um, if the problems that you might be facing with them or conflicts that you have in the moment are due to a lack of compatibility or if it's something you should continue to pursue, I mean, that's only a question that one can answer for oneself. And it's not at all what I'm trying to address in this podcast. All I'm saying is that there might be benefits to sticking it out sometimes. And who could deny that? Who could deny that um, the best laboratory for our growth in certain situations might be the loving presence of a consistent other? And if I think about my own experience... Loving, feeling loved, and and receiving love really goes hand in hand with someone else's knowledge of me. And I think back especially to my family before I came out as gay. And, you know, they could tell me that they loved me till they were blue in the face. But I, I, I realized afterward, after I came out, that I never really believed it. It never really hit me because I always thought oh, well, if, if they knew I was gay, you know, they, they would reject me. They might even kick me out. They certainly wouldn't be happy. They certainly wouldn't uh, celebrate me. And it was only after they had full knowledge of me in that regard, what I knew would be the worst um, stumbling block for them in, in terms of, of who I was. It was only after they knew that about me that I could actually begin to fully, truly receive love from them. And I think this is, uh, this is pretty common experience that, you know, basically someone's love only matters insofar as they know who we are. Acceptance matters only to the extent that we are fully and truly known. And that is what I think is the real 
deep truth-based benefit of monogamy that knowing one person for so long and so exclusively offers the opportunity to be known, to be truly known by someone. And that is the premise upon which we can actually receive and give love. Isn't that what we're here for? I mean, Brene Brown says that in her uh, TED Talk on vulnerability and like every book she writes, that it's all about human connection. It's about love and acceptance. And then the really paradoxical thing is that, you know, when we don't accept someone, um, they kind of become resistant to us. But when, when we actually accept someone for who they are, flaws and all, that's what actually liberates them to finally change and become better. Isn't that true? Haven't you experienced that? It was like, oh, you know, it, when, when people are constantly putting you down or saying, you know, that you're not good enough or, or, or whatever the case may be, um, something in a, within us rises up and, and says, yes, you know, yes, I am. It's all fine. I'm all good. But on the other hand, when someone just accepts you unconditionally for who you are, that's when uh, we really think, I'm going to rise to the challenge. That person is empowering me to become more than I am, to become more truly myself. And isn't that the barometer of a great relationship? It's someone with whom you feel even more yourself than you did before. Someone who brings out the best in you. And it's their acceptance, even given their knowledge of you, that allows that to happen. Now, this can happen, of course, with um, different relationships in a lifetime. You could have, you know, a monogamous relationship with one person. It might come to an end. Then you have another one. It might come to an end. And, and you'll always have some of this growth. But I was thinking and uh, talking with my friend Zach this week, and we kind of noticed that, you know, you can learn a lot in terms of information from new people. You don't even need a relationship from that. Of course, you learn a lot of new things when you meet someone new. However, you probably don't, most of the time, get the same depth. If you want depth, if you want a delving deep, it probably can only come about by sticking with one for a while. It's like um, the benefits of self-knowledge and of acceptance and knowing and love are synergistic, not additive. If you have one relationship for 10 years, that would be deeper and more beneficial than having four relationships over the same period. Um, the benefits of love in in a committed relationship probably are like this increasing returns. You just go deeper and deeper and it might get harder and harder, but it's like any endeavor, any endeavor where say dancing, you, you reach a certain level and it's even harder to make more progress after that, but it's the only way to go deeper than you'd been before. Now, as we draw to a close, I just want to say again that I do not think monogamy should ever be forced. It should never be out of duty. It should never be out of should. Um, it should be out of want. So the question is really, always the question is, what do you want? <laughs> so what do I mean by that? I don't mean what do you 
feel like in the moment, necessarily. I mean, what do you want for yourself? And there is no judgment here. The question is, what will make you happy? What will make you fulfilled? And I really mean happy and fulfilled. I mean healthy. I mean whole. And the answer is going to be different for different people. And you can be sure that doing things out of obligation and only obligation are, is never going to have a good outcome. So that is not what I'm advocating. I'm saying, what do you want? And this, this is where I want to end because the words of Khalil Gibran are just heart-wrenching here. Zach and I read this together this week. And um, Khalil Gibran, if you're not familiar, has this book, The Prophet. It's really like a, a, an extended poem. And it's full of wisdom. And um, he has one chapter on love. And in it, he says this, Even as love crowns you, so shall love crucify you. (laughs) Even as he is for your growth, so is he for your pruning. All of this, all of the pruning, all of the difficulties, all of this love shall do unto you that you may know the secrets of your heart. And in that knowledge, become a fragment of life's heart. Oh, and that's exactly, uh, you know, I was just, it was so cool reading that because I'm like, wow, it's like Gibran really does agree that um, it's about knowledge of one's own heart and becoming part of the universal experience of, of heartbreak and love and loss and commitment and all the difficulties and all of the benefits that come with that. It's a universal experience to become part of life's heart in that way. Now, he ends with this, which you might not have expected. He says, but if in your fear, that is, in your fear of being stripped naked and being vulnerable and, and going through the difficulties of what love has to teach you about yourself, if in your fear you would seek only love's peace and love's pleasure, then it is better for you that you cover your nakedness and pass out of love's threshing floor. <laughs> Thresh, what a word. It's better for you to pass into the seasonless world where you shall laugh but not all of your laughter, and weep, but not all of your tears. Oh my gosh. Khalil Gibran, you got me. (laughs) It's hard not to like tear up or scream when you hear something like that. If in your fear you would seek only love's peace and love's pleasure, that it is better for you to cover your nakedness, pass away from love into the seasonless world where you shall laugh, but not all of your laughter, and weep, but not all of your tears. Oh, heartbreaking. And I think, I think what's being said here is that there is something. There is, there is some deeper laughter. There are some deeper tears, some deeper experience, both hurt and pleasure, both pleasure and pain that uh, love has to offer us if we're not um, averse to it. But then that it might be better that if it's not for us to, to walk away from that type of commitment. These are all questions that nobody has answers for and I could talk about for hours and hours and hours, probably insensibly. But I just wanted to give you some of what I've been wrestling with on this topic. 
and um, and I want to end with the words of Thomas Merton in No Man is an Island. He says, to love another is to will what is really good for him. And I think that's, that's no matter what we decide, no matter, no matter whether um, we are inherently monogamous or polygamous people uh, or polyamorous, whatever word you want to use, no matter what we decide, no matter what is compatible with us, no matter what is true of us at a particular place in time, that the greatest love that life has to offer is the one that wills what is best for another. <laughs> that's where it's at, man. And that's what I wish for you and all of us, that we could experience the selfless giving and receiving of the type of love that is concerned only with what is good for another, best for the beloved. Oh, so that's all I have today. <laughs> <laughs> Hope it wasn't too somber, but I really wanted to share some of what I've been thinking about in terms of love and, and what the point of relationships might be. I hope you found it interesting and useful. Um, briefly before we go, I did want to ask if you listen and like it, please leave uh, a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That will help this get out, and I would so appreciate it. And I'd love to get any feedback from you, um, if you have any, um, and my Instagram, Singing Scientist. I think that's that would make the most sense in terms of where to have conversations. So thanks again, and we'll end again with Richard Rohr's words. The best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Love you much. <laughs>